Welcome to You Might Hate This Book, where each episode one of us will recommend a book to the other. A book that we love that we suspect our co-host might hate. Well, hate is a strong word. How about falls outside of their traditional scope of interest. Fine, that's fair. A book they would never have chosen to read otherwise. We'll read the assigned book, then come back together to discuss. Did you love it? Or did you hate it? So you agree we might hate it. (sighs) Yeah, you might hate it. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Hannah. And you might hate this book. back well hi friend i feel like i well i saw you briefly a couple days ago but other than that yeah we haven't there seen were each children other present for three weeks i know i was in california for 16 days was it lovely it yes also no oh dear first <laughs> it was freezing here in tennessee um okay so we said on episode like Five or six, I was like, by the time this comes out, I'll be in sunny California. It was not... Joke's on me. (laughs) It rained 12 out of the 16 days that I was in California, and I have never seen it rain in California. Well, they've got all that flooding going on. Yeah. I think I caused that. Like, (laughs) you jinxed it. They were in, like, a capital D drought before we went to California, and I was like sunny California, and we got there, and it started raining, and it didn't stop, and now they are flooding. Wow. I think I ruined California. No, it wasn't just you. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) Me and global warming ruined California. Oh, I hate that. At least you got family time. Yeah, I mean, we still had a good time. I mean, rain in California is like a, like what we would might call a christening here. Oh, sure. A sprinkle. Yeah. (laughs) And so... We just had to look at the weather and be like, okay, well, it's raining in the afternoon today, so we'll go for our, like, long walk in the morning. Yeah, I know, I know. You always go on your walks. We still got to go on all of our walks. We still got, you know, and Kyle's brother now has his own house, and so we got to go hang oh, out over there right. oh, yeah. and be completely, like, in a separate home from our toddler. That's nice. Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. I That's where I read four books. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you how many you read because I finished three okay. over, over the break and then some I'm still working on that yeah. I started. I finished three and like got most of the way through a fourth that I finished a couple days later. But I, I started read... more than I finished. <laughs> uh, not because I I didn't like them. I just was yeah. too ambitious. <laughs> sure. So I read um, the second installment of The Atlas Six. I want to read The Atlas Six. Yeah. So. I read that book so fast. I didn't have to take care of my toddler and it was raining outside and I just sat there and was like, this is what I'm doing today. That is perfect reading weather. Yeah, I just read that book uh, basically in a day. That's what I did the day after Christmas. It's, man, as a parent, the day after Christmas is the best. They have all that stuff. They have all these new toys. Both of my boys were just playing and living their best life and I got a Kindle for Christmas. So I downloaded... um, Remarkably Bright Creatures. Yes. For our book club. And that's one of the ones that, that I started. That was a very readable. And I was thinking about genre because we uh-huh. had just talked about it. And I'm like, I asked my sister, who's a librarian and in our book club, like, what is this genre that I love that is this book and A Man Called Ove? I think I landed on Lovable Curmudgeon and a Found Family. <laughs> <laughs> is that a genre? Is that a, genre. A, is that a shelf in the bookstore? <laughs> that's for me. <laughs> if you know a book about a lovable curmudgeon. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that really, that was a good book. We can't yeah. talk about it too much because it's for our book club in a couple of weeks. But yeah, that's one of the ones I read. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then I read uh, Notes on an Execution, which was pretty good. You would hate it. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's, does, yeah. Is it true crime? or No. It's, oh, okay. It's a thriller, but it's done differently than some of them, which is okay. why I liked it more, but I still think you would not like it. Okay. I read, in addition to our book club, Tokyo Ueno Station about a ghost of a homeless man in Japan. It was sad. And about poverty, but it was good. And then what was the other one? Oh, another Japanese author, People from My Neighborhood. It was so weird. It was like, did you ever have to read The House on Mango Street? No, I didn't. So it's written in vignettes, like really short, not even chapters. Some of them are only like a paragraph. And that's kind of like the chapters in this book were. She called them palm stories. Like they could fit in the palm of your hand. So they're really fast, but very, but it was also very magical realism, like, 
very it gave me 100 years of solitude vibes yeah. like things would happen and you're like Wait, what <laughs> oh okay there's like this little clay person that pops up and okay yeah. anyway um so that was a quick read and fun and i wish i could remember either of those authors names <laughs> but i don't think i can pronounce them anyway well the other book i read on christmas break was the book we're discussing today but i wanted to ask oh. you did you get any of the books you wanted for christmas Oh, yes. Uh, I got a lot of Murakami books. Okay. Uh, I got his memoir, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. I got Hard Boiled Wonderland. I got Hester. Yeah. The retelling yeah. of Scarlet Letter. I finished that before I left for Christmas. Yeah. And I got um, my wonderful mother in law got me one by a Polish author I've been wanting. It's Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. <laughs> um, what an instruction. Very, her her new book has been on a bunch of lists of, like, the best books of 2022. Yeah. It's called The Book of Jacob? Jacob? Something like that? Uh, anyway, I can't remember off the top of my head. I might have even said the title wrong, and I can't remember her name. Her first name's Olga, but we'll put it in our show notes. So, yeah. Well, for anyone list, well, you're obviously listening. Never mind. I'm going to take that I out. I listen to you. <laughs> Anna, please listen to me. Um, I've missed you. <laughs> I put little buttons at the end of our shows after the outro music. And yes. I think for episode five, Hannah had inadvertently mentioned <laughs> that book is on my Christmas list. Not once, not twice, but thrice in an episode. And so I made a little <laughs> compilation of all the times Hannah said, oh, that's on my Christmas list mm -hmm. for episode five. So, yeah, start listening to the entire episode because there's always a little button at the end. So that's why I was curious. Did you get any of those yes, books for I Christmas? Got, well, and that was episode five when we did Kafka on the Shore. So yeah. most of the books I got were Murakami books. I also got John Green's The Anthropocene Review. I want to read that so bad. I have that. Um, my brother-in-law. I'm going to borrow that. it from you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I got at least three Murakami books, so yeah. that checks out with the button. Yeah, and you got your Kindle. <laughs> yes, so I have all... Yes, my, actually, <laughs> my four-year-old Rowan asked me, Mommy, how many books did you get as I was opening my Kindle? Because uh -huh. we had opened some on Christmas Eve and then Christmas morning, and my Kindle was at my mom's house Christmas Day for lunch. <laughs> and I said, well, buddy, I have all the books now. <laughs> I have every book. <laughs> so I've been digging that. Um, so Kyle, my husband, just finished reading Kafka. Oh, and, yes. Um, he can talk to you more about that. We already have in the driveway while yeah. I was coming here. <laughs> um, but I thought it was funny. He understood it more, way better yes. than either one of us did. Apparently, it's yes. right up his alley. He was like, this is philosophically self-evident. He's, he's better versed in Japanese culture, which I think yeah. helped him more. Yeah. Um, and he also was like, this guy's really obsessed with his penis. And I was like, <laughs> I, I remember mentioning that, I believe. And he said, sometimes he gets really pretentious. I was like, okay, so yes, at least we are on the same that. page a lot. Um, but in general, um, you're convincing Kyle to read books. I'm not convincing him to read any. <laughs> he doesn't want to read any of my books. He wants to read your books. Um, but lots of people have texted me and said, like, I got those books that you mentioned during your bonus episode, and oh, yeah. I've started reading this book. I've started reading that book, and we love that. Tell yes. us when you read our books. Yes, <laughs> our friend Cliff, he mentioned yeah. that to me while you were gone. That yeah. Downloaded a couple. And mm -hmm. we forget to mention this a lot, but we have an email address. You, you can email us at <laughs> hatethisbookpod at gmail.com. So if you're not someone who has our phone numbers, right. tell us that you started reading a book. Tell us that you hated it or loved it or whatever. We want to hear from you. And tell your friends. If you are a person that has our phone numbers and wants to talk to us, that's great. But tell your friends that don't have our phone numbers, too, to listen. <laughs> yes. To listen. Yes. And so we have about 50 regular listeners to this podcast, which is okay. super cool. Yeah. And hello Thank to you. all of you. We're so glad that you listened to us. We would love to have more listeners, and for that to happen, we need to have ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. And mm -hmm. right now, we, we're sitting solidly at 15. So if all 50 of you go out and write a review on Apple Podcasts, share this podcast with a friend, we're having so much fun doing it, and we'll mm -hmm. do it for the 50 people. That's fine. Oh, yeah. And for ourselves. Yeah, it's fun. we love doing it, but... I want more people to have fun with it. Like, mm -hmm. Kyle loved reading Kafka and talking to you about it. Mm -hmm. Yes. And Cliff loved picking up Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and talking yes. to me about it. Mm -hmm. Like, I want for more people to be able to do that. So 
share this podcast with someone who doesn't know about it. Uh, rate and review us so that other people who have no idea who we are can find it. Especially on Apple. I know some yeah. of you listen on Spotify. Make sure to rate and review on Apple. Yes. That will get other people to find this podcast. Yeah. So we were just going to do a little call out for that. to Definitely. Um, I do know now that you can only see ratings and reviews. Or not ratings. You can definitely reviews. only see reviews from the country you're in. Because my friend in Canada was like, I reviewed your podcast. Did you see it? I was like, uh, no. And <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, by the way. Yeah, he screenshotted it. It was like, I did do it. And I Googled it. And you cannot see reviews mm-hmm. from the state or the country you are not in. That's so. all right. We're, we're already international. That's Yes. Fine. I'm going to mention as often as I can my friend from Canada because it's giving very, like, my boyfriend goes to a different school <laughs> vibes. And I want to see how many people think I don't have a friend in Canada. I know you do. I believe. But remember, like, your mom's friend who... Yeah. We... <laughs> I always think of that. My mom had a friend she worked with. I don't know where or why this happened, but she would just start talking about her friend Tony and... My two sisters and I are trolls, I guess. <laughs> and one day one of them was like, we know she's not real, Mom. We know she's imaginary. <laughs> For years, every time she would mention Tony, we even if there were other people in the house, we'd be like, oh, that's her imaginary friend. <laughs> yeah, so I'm a little worried that people think my friend in Canada is, your Tony? <laughs> is my Tony. <laughs> but, you know... If he's real, he'll appreciate this. And if he's yeah. not, then, you know. That's all right. <laughs> that's fine. Makes us feel good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah, the last book I read in California was The Coquette. The very last book you read? Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes, The Coquette. I guess we should get to it now that we're 10 minutes in. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, so, are you ready for class? <laughs> <laughs> I am. <laughs> I'm ready. Okay. Um. So, The Coquette. Uh, I guess I should give a summary. A couple of things you should know contextually. It was uh, published in 1797. A while back. So a a few years ago. And it is an epistolary novel, so written in letters. Um, Third-person omniscient narrator was not a thing. Mm -hmm. Not a thing at the time. So if you were to approach this book, you're approaching a different beast. Um, Yes. But the main character who writes the majority of the letters, Eliza Wharton, uh, the book begins, she is suddenly freed from an engagement that was advantageous for her and her family, but not desired. She's freed from it because the man dies. Like, yes, he was a bit older than she was. She's from a pretty well-to-do American family. I mean, not super high up, upper class, but they're doing all right. And so she writes to her friends about how she she's finding joy in this new freedom. And of course, in the wake of this, she has other male suitors pop up. One who is rather honorable in his intentions and another who is not. And she, quite frankly, doesn't fancy either at first. Um, and she's writing to mainly three female friends uh, throughout the novel, expressing her desires uh, to them. And they're all on different paths. One of them is married and has a child throughout the book, Mrs. Richmond. One of them, Julia. Nope. Not Julia. Lucy Freeman gets married throughout the book, so she changes to Lucy Sumner. And then Julia Granby, toward the end, who is unmarried uh, and is so at the end of the novel. But I'm not going to worry about spoilers for this one. No. It's been out. It spoiled itself before it was, like, part of it is that it's a spoiler already in its existence. Yes. It was based on a real-life event, which I, I can talk about later. So not only am I not worried about spoilers because it's really old... Um, And also because I doubt a lot of our listeners (laughs) are actually going to pick this one up. And I know that. Uh, But it was a a bestseller at the time. Okay. Because it was based on a real event that I'll I'll talk about later. But everybody knew the real event that happened, which was Mm -hmm. this woman who died mysteriously at an inn after giving birth to a child that no one knew the father to. And that is what happens to Eliza at the end of this book. She succumbs to one of those two suitors and runs away and dies far from friends. And the last few letters of the novel are her friends writing about her and where is she? And then they find her and they put up her gravestone. And the gravestone is the last page of the novel. Mm -hmm. So, surreal upper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Ends on a real high Yeah, it falls under, it's an early American novel. Um, It falls under the umbrella genre of the seduction novel. Oh. Uh, Charlotte Temple is another American one. Pamela is one as well. I know none of these. That's okay. You're not an English major. <laughs> Only English majors know these books. 
But the seduction novel is a pretty popular genre of that time period. Okay. The cautionary, you know, these women succumbing to yeah. the the rake. We've got the coquette. Don't walk in a garden next to a man. Right. <laughs> the coquette, which the, the novel is named after, is the woman who flirts, mm-hmm. right? And then you have the rake, which is the male who equivalent, I suppose, who, you know, takes often young girls and deflowers them. Yes, I knew about the word rake because I watch Bridgerton. Oh, <laughs> and season right. two is about... Simon, who is a rake. That's right. I knew it from... They even had the same quote, um, reformed rakes make the best husbands. That's in Bridgerton, and it's in this book, and I was like, oh. Oh, it I, is? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. That yeah, you so it must be a, a real phrase. A connection there. Yeah, why... Well... Season two of Bridgerton was better <laughs> in this I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> I'll talk later about my history with the book, but when I read it for a class, my professor pointed out to us, you know, the difference between a rake and a coquette the rake had to have actually done something physical to be labeled a rake. Mm-hmm. To be a coquette, to be labeled one, you didn't have to have actually done anything. Mm-hmm. You could have just looked at a man, you know, yeah, flirty and, yeah, you're a coquette. You're a loose woman. You're a flirt. I have much to say on the topic. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, I'll also explain, I guess, why I assigned it to you. I was hesitant to. I assigned it to you once and then took it back and then assigned <laughs> it to you again. Um, because it is, it's homeworky. But I, I've, there were a couple things I really was interested in your take, and it's one of those novels I might consider teaching to a class at some point. So okay. Please use my perspective you are when you my teach first, teenagers. You are my first student. But in light of all that, I'm going to guess you gave it, like, two stars. I gave it two and a half hairy pancakes. Oh, okay. 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 <laughs> I'm using halves. Because, That's fine. Yeah. That's fine. I've thought about that for my next one. Yeah. Two and a half pancakes. Okay. So there were some things that I liked. Okay. I'll start with the things that I liked. First of all, I would have, if I were alive in 17-whatever we said. 97. 97. I love some celebrity gossip and an Easter egg. (laughs) I would have been first in line to be like, I know the backstory to this book, and I want to see how accurate this book got. I would have been here for it. Part of the preface that I didn't have you read makes the comment that in every household and, uh, like, New England at this time, you would have found two books, the Bible and this book. <laughs> yeah. Very closely related, oh, yes. the Bible and this book. But they love some some gossip. Yeah, I would have been here for that. Mm. It's a little bit less enticing this far removed from it, but I, sure. I would have appreciated it in its moment. That was one angle I thought you would, you would enjoy. Yeah. So the first thing I liked is I didn't realize that third-person omniscient narration was not a thing, mm-hmm. but... I am often criticized for writing first person uh, in my books, and multiple points of view is something that I really like. So this book is written in first person because it's letters, and it's multiple points of view. Right. Every book I've written is in multiple points of view, and the first two were in first person. The third one I started in first person and then changed to third because that's more common these days and people prefer it. Yes. But it is very hard to write a good book with multiple points of view and have them be distinct and have them hmm. work. And that is the complaint that I've gotten with my books is that the voices are these these voices similar. just sound like you. Like right. both of these just sound like you. And right. I can't remember who I'm reading. And to like give people distinct speech patterns and give mm-hmm. people distinct mannerisms even only in like the words that they say. And especially with letters, because right. you're not describing their action. No, it's the character sat down consciously. Yeah, so in a different first-person narration, it might be describing actions, and you could get even more from that, but that's not even included here. So I appreciate the level of skill it took to write in this way. I was thinking it was probably innovative for its time. I don't know if it was now that you... Um, Not in its form so much. Okay. uh, As its characters, perhaps. And I'm not... I am not an early American literary scholar by any means. Um, but the the epistolary, or epistolary, I always say it wrong, novel, <laughs> was not uncommon. Yeah, okay. I still appreciated that. And it reminded me very much of, like, the way I like to write and mm-hmm. books I like to read. Mm-hmm. So I liked that. Um, the second thing I liked was antiquated language. Oh, and yes. <laughs> boy, was this book antiquated language. Yes. It was only 130 pages right. in the copy that you gave me. 
And it took me a minute to read. I could have read that in an afternoon in a regular book. Sure. And it was like, I understand what each of these individual words means. But if I start reading it too quickly, all of a sudden I'm like, wait, I don't know what we're talking about. You have to like stop and listen. There was one phrase. I am again over head and ears in the hypo, (laughs) meaning (laughs) depression. I am going to start using that. Next time I am depressed, I'm going to say, I am again over head and ears in the hypo. <laughs> that so much. Please say that. I was like, what? And it has a little footnote. And I go down and it goes, to be depressed. <laughs> I did give you the Norton Critical Edition. So it had some footnotes to help you. I along. really like that. I never would have known what being <laughs> over head and ears in the hypo would have meant. But I really like it. It was just so simple. To be depressed. I want to be around when you use it and everybody's just looking at you quizzically. And then I'm like, oh, baby, are you okay? (laughs) I'm so sorry to hear that. (laughs) But, like, antiquated language has this. It didn't at the time, I'm sure, because it's not antiquated. Right. It's just how people talk. But it makes the insults funnier. Yes. It it makes the passionate moments more passionate. Yes. Like... It reminded me of One Last Time from Hamilton because they sing a part of George Washington's farewell address. Right. You could not get me to cry at a farewell address, Mm -hmm. but they... I don't know. They like just, they had so the one much reviewing more the incidents of my administration. Am I unconscious of intentional error? I am nevertheless too sensible of my defects not to think <sighs> it probable that I may have committed many errors. I love Washington so much. <laughs> I will also carry with me the hope that my country shall view them with indulgence. I I listen to just that part of that song on repeat and just go, oh, and yeah. like have feelings. I've always loved, like, George Washington has been my favorite president since college. I do this. <laughs> no. So I didn't know you had a favorite president. I, I'm forever a nerd. Um, but... Yes, when when Hamilton came out and I listened to that song, I was just like, oh, I love this so much. I, went, I read that speech. Yeah, I went and read it after mm-hmm. like learning that song. I was like, I'm going to go read the farewell address. Yes. And so it just had this way of like making it more interesting. Yes. Some people, when I read the one-star reviews, some people were like, oh, the language. Sure. I was like, the language made it interesting for me. I dug it. Right. But, you know. And that would be, I think, a challenge if I were to teach it. Yes. Um, Depending on what level I taught it at. Yeah. You definitely have to pay more attention. Mm -hmm. But, okay. So that's what I liked. Cool. Okay. Lay it on me. Okay. The characters. Oh, yeah. Not a single one of them was likable except for Lucy. Oh, interesting. Okay. Did you think I would like Eliza? I thought maybe. I I mean, I have sympathy for her. I understand her. I did not find her likable. She was what you would call an asshole. Oh, yeah. A-S-K-H-O-L-E. Oh, okay. Tell me more about this. Yes. Um, Well, she's put in this situation where she essentially is picking between two men, neither of... Well... Yes. So the marriage proposals I mentioned in the summary, there's Reverend Boyer. Mm -hmm. He's a reverend. He's he's honorable, right? But he's boring. Boyer. Um, (laughs) And then Major Sanford. Mm -hmm. He's a, a military rake. So she... Is not interested in Boyer. And she is interested in being in a friends with benefits ship with the other guy. She's not looking to get married. She enjoys his company. Yeah. But she asks her friend, what should I do? And every single one of her friends says unequivocally, this is exactly what I would do in this situation. (laughs) And Eliza goes, hmm, I'm still so confused. I wonder what I should do. If only I had someone to help me make this very difficult decision, I will go sit in the window and ponder it. She writes another letter, and she's like, friend, I'm still in the same situation. Sure. What should I do? The same thing I said last time. What I told you. Yes, and it is not a long book, and the biggest majority of the book is spent Eliza going, what should I do? This is what you should do. Are you sure? What should I do? This, like... 70% Yes. 70% of it is that. And then we get to the interesting part and we just skim right over it. But yeah, so Eliza <laughs> yes. was unlikable because I was like, friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is so, I'm so excited. Why don't you just do what you feel like doing and mm-hmm. stop bringing it up in conversation? It sounds like you know what you want to do. Why don't you go ahead I, and do I it? I do not disagree with you. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
and I hated our relationships. The oh. first the first relationship we really deal with is Eliza and Reverend Boyer. They yes. get introduced first and he they go for a walk and later that night he's like I would like to marry you. You seem okay. (laughs) I would like to marry you. And she says, in no uncertain terms, I'm not looking for that. I think you're nice enough and we can be friends, but I don't want to get married. Mm -hmm. Yes. And in true male form, he's like, but I bet she means yes. And so... (laughs) Surely. The next time he sees her, he's like, about what I said last time, I would still like to marry you. And since you walked in a garden with me... A second time. You clearly, you clearly want to marry me, too. And she says, I don't, though. Mm-hmm. You seem nice enough. We can be friends. I cannot guarantee you that I will ever fall in love with you or want to get married. And he says, interesting. I bet that means yes. <laughs> I, please come summarize all the novels that I teach. <laughs> and this, this goes summer. on for forever and ever. And she gets even sterner. She says, you don't have to wait for me, but I cannot guarantee you that in the future I will want to marry you. Maybe I will, but I don't know. You make the choice about whether you want to stick around and wait for that or not. Very modern of her, I thought. Yes. Yes. And... This prickled me a little bit because I have been in that situation and received the same treatment. Mm -hmm. I was very clear. I do not want to be in a relationship right now. If you want to hang out until I'm ready, fine, but I'm not expecting you to do that. So instead, he sings to me outside (laughs) a, a window and expects me expects me to run down the stairs to where he's waiting outside and kiss him. And he told me that. That's what movies have prepared me for. (laughs) I came downstairs and I was like, that was really sweet of you. I, uh, my opinion is the same. I'm I'm so sorry I was in Europe during that (laughs) semester. It's fine. (laughs) I found other people to cry at. Sorry. (laughs) But I was like, my opinion's the same. He goes, I expected you to at least kiss me. And I was like, so you... No, no. You chose to manipulate me to get what you, even though I said... Eliza says what she wants, and this man has the audacity to say, you have led me on, you've tricked me, you have made me believe that you've promised me something. He writes to his friends, she's clearly promised that this is going to happen, I'm going to try and like set a firm date for our marriage, she has led me to this expectation. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, where did you get that impression, Sir Boyer? (laughs) I I hated them. All the interactions between yes. them, I hated. That's just relationship one. We, oh, ha- boy. we have another one. And I think it's worse. <laughs> we have relationship two. Oh. So, like, halfway through her relationship with Boyer, she meets this other guy who's, like, more fun. Oh, she yes. has Much she, more fun. She has fun talking to him, has fun hanging out with him. She still doesn't necessarily want to get married, but at least she liked hanging out with this and guy. And he doesn't even propose to her, right? No, no. Mm-hmm. Um... <laughs> He's fun. So <laughs> tell us about Major Sanford. He is also very clear in what he wants. He does not want to get married, no. perhaps to anybody, but definitely not to Eliza. But he likes her too much to allow her to marry someone else. Yeah. And so he states in a letter to his friend that his one goal is to break Eliza up with Boyer, which they're not engaged because she didn't say yes, because she didn't (laughs) want to marry him. But because they keep going for walks, it's assumed in society that they are tangentially engaged. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Sanford is like, "My, my only goal is to make sure she doesn't marry him. I'm not going to marry her, but I just can't have anyone else touching her. Right. Oh, my goodness. The worst. Because <laughs> this is an epistolary novel. Like, you get a few letters from Boyer, and, like, he's got, like, an intermediary friend that writes letters. Yeah. But, like, you have letters in his voice from Major Sanford to his friend talking about a life. I would like to read part of oh, one. Oh, they're so awful. Go I ahead. Would, I would like to read part of one. Go ahead. The dear girl was not inexorable. 
She was as placable and condescending as I could expect, considering the nature of the crime, which was apparently slighting her person and charms by marrying another. This, you know, is one of the nicest points with the ladies. Attack their honor, that is their chastity, and they construe it to be the effect of excess love, which hurries you a little beyond the bounds of prudence. <laughs> but touch their vanity by preferring another, and they will seldom pardon you. You will say I am very severe upon the sex, and have I not reason to be, since I have found so many frail ones among them? Uh. This, however, is departing from my subject. Eliza is extremely altered, her pale, dejected countenance with the sedateness of her manners so different from the lively glow of health, cheerfulness, and activity which formerly animated her appearance and deportment struck me very disagreeably. Uh. <laughs> and then I'm going to skip for a little bit. This letter is about how he married another woman for yes. her wealth. He, he, yes, he straight up says that. He does not like this woman and marries her for her wealth. Yep. And now, like, Eliza's mad. Because I, I preferred another. Because I broke up her other possibility and swore that I loved her more than anything and then married someone else. And she's, like, mad at me. I don't get it. <laughs> These frail ones. Frail ones. My wife begins to rally me on my fondness for Miss Wharton. She asked me the other day if she had a fortune. No, I said. If she had, I would have married her. Uh, oh, no! Uh. This wounded her sensibility. I repented of my sincerity and made my peace for that time. Yet I find myself growing extremely irritable, and she must take heed how she provokes me. For I do not love her, and I think the name of my wife becomes more and more distasteful to me every day. The worst. <laughs> the worst. Yeah, so he's like, I don't know why all the women are mad. I said I would marry her, and then I didn't. And then I did marry this one, and I said I didn't love her. I wouldn't have married someone else. Why is everyone so mad at me? I'm they're just so, doing what I want. I was just being sincere. They're so frail. <laughs> yep. And if this had not been written by a woman, yeah, I don't think I could stomach that. But, like, the fact that a woman wrote this, oh. I'm like, he's a caricature. Like, yes. He's just... I'm sure there were men like him. But... Oh, I'm certain. But yeah, Ugh. he's the worst. Yeah, he really is. So after Sanford is married and after Mr. Boyer. Oh. Oh, yeah. Okay. He also gets married. Okay. So Boyer, who cannot take no for an answer, she says, I don't want to marry you. I don't want to marry you. I don't want to marry you. And then sees her talking to Major Sanford. And he goes, "Ah." Oh, what an offense. I don't want to marry you. And yes, so Lucy. he doesn't decide marriage is not on the table until he is offended. Not until he receives a very clear answer from her. Right. Anyway, he then leaves and says, you cannot repair this with me. I'm going to go get married to someone else. So he does. Mm. Great. I'm mm. sure they're very happy together. I wish them the best. It's Truly, his friend that was writing. The, it's his, his friend's sister. His sister. friend's sister. He married his friend's mm -hmm. sister. Maria I mean, Selby. Yeah. What a trope. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so after Boyer's married and after Sanford's married, Eliza's there going, how did I get here where I used to have two boys who like me and now no boys like me? <laughs> Yeah. So Poor she, girl. Tale as old as time. <laughs> I've been there, too. <laughs> so she starts sleeping with Major Sanford yep. on the down low yep. and finds herself in the family way. Yes, she does. I didn't like the characters. No. For all the <clears throat> reasons just listed. The plot. I knew the plot before the book started. Right, I had you read because, the preface yeah. that outlines Elizabeth Wharton's story. Yeah, so Elizabeth Wharton's story is apparently similar enough to what I just said, or maybe we don't know that part. We we only <laughs> know the ending of her story. Right. Um, Hannah Foster Webster, Hannah Webster Foster, man, I knew I was going to do that. <laughs> She's got two last I just names. know the Hannah part. She filled in the gaps because the real yeah. life woman that this story is based on, do you want to tell the story? Sure. So the real woman goes to stay at an inn for several weeks mm -hmm. and she says her husband's coming, mm -hmm. but the husband never comes and she's very noticeably pregnant. So right. everyone is expecting that she does. This in is fact, in Danvers, Massachusetts, yes. I think. 
So everyone expects that she does, in fact, have a husband, but she gets pregnanter and pregnanter, and alas, no husband shows up. Right. She gives birth to a stillborn yes. and very soon after dies. About a week, yes. Yeah, and because she was clearly hiding her pregnancy from anyone who knew her, they were like, well, now we have this dead woman, and to whom does she belong? Yeah, she signed into the inn under a fake name. Yeah, like, so... Like, they looked for that first, and they are like, this is Yeah, so they were like, who... Surely she's someone's daughter, someone's wife, someone's something... And so they put out in the newspaper a description of this woman, that she mm-hmm. was pregnant, what happened. And they were like, does anyone know this person? Can anyone claim this dead Can woman? Can anyone claim this dead woman? Um, and then they found some letters of hers that ca- kind of illuminated the story. But then... They found fragments. Yeah. And she had clearly... I don't know if this was in your preface or something else I read, but she had been clearly burning some. Mm-hmm. They found pieces in the fireplace. Oh, okay. Yes. I love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was clear enough what had happened. She'd gotten pregnant outside of the bounds of matrimony, mm-hmm. decided to hide it from her friends and family and society, left town, found an inn, and was probably planning to, you know, then leave with her child after she had it, and right. that didn't happen. So as a morality lesson that I have <laughs> distaste for. Right, sure, um, of course. This book is then written as a warning to all young women to... Well, so the real-life Elizabeth Wharton was used as a morality lesson, certainly. Right. Like, they, so who she really was. She was a socially elite young woman. Her um, her family were very well-to-do. Yeah, she was in the family of someone famous, but I forget who now. I remember it was in the preface that you made me read. I don't remember... Yeah, what, like her Someone grandfather... Someone in American history that the name well, you well, I think her grandfather was a very famous, like... Preacher. Yeah. Um, and it's also speculated that so one of the okay, one of the big things nobody knows is who the father was. Mm-hmm. Even from her letters, nobody knows. She, like Eliza, had had two suitors and rejected Ooh. them. She was 37, which is older than you or I, and we're married and have kids like yeah. in 2023. So she's getting old. That's 78 in right. 1700s um, years. You know, so she had disappeared from home. She was supposedly going to visit friends in another town, which that was a you know, two-week endeavor Yeah, back in the day and had then disappeared. Um, but so it was so public because they had to put those news yeah. advertisements out of who is this woman. And so, like, every preacher from, you know, all yeah. of the eastern coast, she was a Your morality Your face could tale. be in the newspaper right. if you go for a walk in the woods with a boy. This right. could be how you So end her up. real-life story did become a morality tale. Whether or not that is what Hannah... Webster Foster meant in her novel is debated by critics, and we can talk about that later. I also am kind of debating it because, like, 90% of the book didn't feel that way to me, especially, like, the caricatures. I said especially, which I hate. I didn't mean to do that. (laughs) It's okay. I'll start again. (laughs) Especially uh, the caricature of Sanford. I mean, he is painted to be a douche. Oh, absolutely. We're criticizing the men here, and her... Eliza's friends write, I mean, this man is awful. He has no morals, no character. Mm -hmm. He is bad. And so instead of just, like, victim-blaming and, like, slut-shaming that we would... They criticize the man involved in this and say that he is bad. So I didn't find it to be a morality tale until the very end. Mm -hmm. And then there's a couple pages where... I think it's one of the letters from Julia? Yeah, her newer friend. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That really turns it into that. And I was like, oh, is that what we're doing here at the very end? And then we have her tombstone, which is so pretty. Which is based on Elizabeth Wharton's tombstone. Yeah. You can still go visit her tombstone in Massachusetts. Um, I wasn't sure if that's what she meant, but then she convinced me that that is what she meant there at the end. And I was like, oh, I don't like that. Yeah. It's it's one of those things that I think makes it a fun novel to teach because I, I don't think there's one answer. When I read this for a class, our... Our professor, he gave us, he said, you know, there's three ways to read this. One is just the commercial appeal. Like, Mm -hmm. she's capitalizing on... Yeah, celebrity gossip. Right. And then there's the cautionary tale and the, you know, subversive social commentary. Like, Mm -hmm. because she intentionally makes Eliza's character, I think, the most complex of the book. Mm -hmm. She could have very easily, like all the, you know, pulpits and newspapers were doing in New England at the time, just made her out to be this flighty, awful woman that deserved what she got. Yeah. But she does not. She doesn't. That's true. Um, So, yeah, I think there's evidence both ways. Yeah. And I am Mm -hmm. leaning more towards social commentary. Maybe 
author Hannah was worried not to even include if she just ended the book and not included right. the morality tale, maybe she was like, I should tack this on at the end and not make people mad. But it's like, how do you actually define if something's trying to be subversive? Because isn't the point of being subversive, like, yeah. <laughs> flying under the radar? I mean, but one of the things she talks about is how Eliza was, like, pretty clearly manipulated by Sanford because yes. he guilted her and did the grand gesture, which we talked about. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, and exactly how I was talking about... I grand gesture you in order to manipulate you into changing your mind because you will then feel obligated, now that I've grand gestured, mm -hmm. to feel differently than you actually do right. and then behave differently than you really want to. Yes. And Sanford essentially does that with her to the point that she's sleeping with him and showing up, you know, whenever he deigns yes. to stop by. And I will, one other piece of... Well, it's not even fact, but based on real people, one of the names that was bandied about often as the possible father of Elizabeth Wharton's child was Pierpont Edwards. Who's that? Uh, well, who cares? But um, <laughs> he was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, right? The famous preacher, sinners in the hand of an angry guy. Mm. He was preaching from the pulpit, not only the Elizabeth Wharton cautionary tale, but also another big debate at this time was novels in general being <laughs> sinful. Like, you read a novel? Oh no. He he was pretty vocal about how novels were were sinful. Well, sign me up. Um, and of course, you know, so that whole dynamic was so the fact that we have Sanford here and he's like we've said this caricatured rake. Um, yeah. And the grandson of this famous preacher could have been yeah, the father, you know. It it complicates things for author Hannah. Yeah. I touched on this that I hated that most of the plot was spent with Eliza ass-holing. <laughs> and then she leaves in the middle of the night in a carriage because she's pregnant and she has to leave town and she abandons her family and she goes to an inn where she apparently lives in a secret identity and then she has a baby. That's like five pages. Right. The interesting part of this story is five right. pages. Which I wondered is like, is that because everybody already knew that story? You know? Yeah. I Yeah. The, the missing pieces of that story were all that came before it. But for me, I was like, really? We're yes. just going to skip that part. For what it is, I understood what it is because yes. of the preface. So my thought was, for what this is supposed to be, it's a three. It is pancakes. Right. It was really the morality tale that gave me the hair in those pancakes. Yes. I figured that would be the And case. now I'm waffling. No pun intended about the pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> Back and forth between uh, whether or not it is a morality tale or not. That's why I gave it two and a half is because I was right. like, hmm. Right. I don't know. I think it, and I'll get into this later, but I think you can read it either way. Yeah. I, I would accept a paper, you know, from a student reading it either way. There are critics that have read it either way. You can, the Wikipedia page for this book is very brief, but it even <laughs> gives, like, some references of some literary critics that have read it more along the morality tale and then more along the lines of the social commentary. Yeah. Um, so there's evidence for both, which is what I think makes a good novel to teach. It's like, yeah, it's not clear cut. Um, I think at the very least it makes good discussion, and right. but that's what I thought of it was, cool. you know, okay, solidly in the middle. Um, so I'll give you a little bit of history. We've already talked about the story of Elizabeth Wharton, and the novel was published in, in 1797. It was published anonymously. Oh, yeah. She's a woman. We haven't been doing that, but yes. I remember that that's how it so was So Hannah Webster Foster, she... Um, she was from a pretty well-to-do family. She, Her father was a wealthy merchant. She went to an all-girls boarding school, married a Dartmouth grad. As we all know, do back in those days. Reverend John Foster, because that was back when the Ivy Leagues were for ministry, right? An all-girls boarding school and marrying a reverend. Right. So she grew up and lived in Massachusetts. She wrote political articles for the newspaper. Ooh, go her. And then this was her first novel. Uh, but her name was not put on the cover until after her death. Wow. Uh, in 1866, and she died in 1840. Wow. So she didn't even get credit in her lifetime. I'm sure there were people that knew. but Right. She died in Canada. She went to uh, Montreal. To I live. have a friend in Canada. Yes. <laughs> I, I did that just for you. She, By the way, she had six kids, too. I should, she, she got married. God bless. Well, she got married, was writing for the newspaper, had six kids, then wrote a novel. Okay. And, well. Oh, well, two, actually, and then went back to writing newspaper articles. Her husband died well before her, so she went to Canada to live with uh, one of her daughters. And two of her daughters, she had three sons, three daughters, two of her daughters became writers okay. as well. They wrote mainly, like, religious texts, one about martyrs, and I, I think 
teaching the Bible to children. So preaching just runs in the family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I just thought knowing her story and just the publication history was was neat. Yeah. The the book, the way it was originally published, it had the coquette, a novel founded on fact. <laughs> what the cover read. The documentary subtitle based on true events. Right. <laughs> so I, my history with this book, I read it lat well in 2021. So since we're just started yeah. this year, a little bit over a year ago. Um, when I was beginning grad school, I had to take early American literature. And I got to say, I mean, I'm an English major. I love literature. I don't like early American literature. <laughs> Sorry, Dr. Spradlin. <laughs> but I was not excited to take this class. And this was the first reading of that class. I was like, great. This looks <laughs> awful. I've read Uncle Tom's Cabin twice now. Like, I I know it's important and I know what it did. But <laughs> I, I know it's important. I, I hate, hate that it. book. So this book, I was just like, oh, great. <laughs> and I was surprised by it. Yeah. I was like, oh, I kind of like this. And I liked the history of it and where it you know, came from. And I, it was a serious contender for my master's thesis. It was between this and... Uh, Jacobean play, The Duchess of Malfi, which won. But I did write a paper for, um, for that class on early American literature on this book. We could pick anything we read from the from the class, and I, I chose this one. So I, I just have to shout out Dr. Thomas Scanlon, my professor from Ohio University. I appreciated him including this in our in our class. So he did a lot of research about happiness. He had us take this happiness quiz. And like, are you happy? Yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> it was more about not like, are you happy, but what is it that makes you happy? Okay. Uh, because the idea of happiness and the pursuit of happiness in early America versus now. You had lots of that underlined in this book. Right, yeah. <laughs> yes, you read my copy. Yeah, <laughs> your copy definitely had that theme. Like, what is the pursuit of happiness? Like, we read it as a very individualistic endeavor, right? Mm-hmm. But in the early American Republic, which makes sense, like we are a newly formed nation. It is about the good of the whole. There was a phrase called happify the whole. Like happify the right, whole. Right. It was I found it in my notes. I don't even remember who said it. It was in Dr. Scanlon's notes. But it, in 1790, you know, when this book came out, happiness was not just like, oh, you're right as an individual. It was a civic responsibility. Like, yeah, we all had to work together. To make us as a community happy. The pursuit of happiness was like for everyone. In Uh, these letters, her friends say, this is what will make you happy. And they tell her what's going to make her happy. And those are the things that you underlined a lot is, Mm -hmm. yeah, so that's funny that they were like, I understand what makes the community better? So I'm telling you, this is what will make you happy. Right, and, and it's to be normal. It's to go. It's to go get married and have, to fit the mold that yeah. you're supposed to fit, basically. Yeah, and that idea of personal sacrifice. Yeah, for public happiness. And our boy Washington, you know, he did. He was a reluctant leader. He, you know, he intentionally stepped down because he did that One kind of. Time. I know. I know. <laughs> So that idea of happiness is something that we're not as in tune with Yeah, for this book. And then that leads to also one of the other things we talked about in class was the idea of Republican motherhood. And not Republican like the political party, but early Republic. The, the domestic sphere for women at that time, like what their role was. It wasn't, I mean, it was to be wife and mother, but they were the holders of virtue for early America. They were the ones entrusted to keep their husbands virtuous, to keep their, to teach their children about virtue and to basically shape the moral fiber of our nation. That was sure. their job and that was their, you know, responsibility to happify the whole. And so that is what when you say Eliza's friends were like pushing her to like no, he's bad. You need to do this. This will make you happy because they were trying to get her to fit that idea of republican motherhood. Yeah. And she says like uh, well, I'm pretty sure I know that that yeah. wouldn't make me happy. Yeah. And she's talking from an individual standpoint of like, yes, exactly. I I don't think that would make me happy. And they're like, trust me, I know yes. this will make you happy. She's thinking individualistically, more liberally, and they're still thinking in terms of, no, yeah. you need to do what's best. And in that time to think individual is to be bad. Yeah, I mean, there were more and more people. It was a transitional period. There are a whole, like critical analyses of this novel with like Lockean political theory, which I'm not even going to touch, but it's there. (laughs) It's there if you're so inclined. Um, So those are two things contextually to know about the novel. The other thing is marriage in general. 
Mm-hmm. Marriage was not for personal fulfillment. It was an economic necessity. I, it was for the orderly transition of property. And the more money you had, <laughs> the more reason you had to get married and produce heirs and keep that property line. Good. Would you like to engage in the orderly... <laughs> right. <laughs> what was it? <sighs> The orderly transition of yes. property. A proposal. Would you like to engage in the orderly transition of property yeah. with me? A thousand times yes. Yeah. And there was <laughs> there were a lot of marriages that started. I mean, you know, other cultures get bad raps for arranged marriages, but that's basically what these were, too. Sure. They didn't know each other. They were expected to bond after they got married, which is the opposite of where we live yeah. now. And there was the idea of coverture, which married women were not allowed to own property. Mm. So they also did for protection. Like... You know, if you're an unmarried woman, you probably live with your father. If you're a married woman, you live with your husband. There's no really in-between as far as protection for you. Interestingly enough, widows posed a big problem here. Yeah. Because widows had property, but no husband. Mm. That's that's where we get the lusty widow trope. I'll have you read The Duchess of Malfi one day. Okay. It's a lot of fun. I would start a club of widows who slowly poison their husbands and then have property and take (laughs) over the world. Yeah, well, they were vilified. I mean, even back in Shakespeare's day, like, oh, you can't be a widow. You need to get remarried because you got to get her back in Do I, though? Now I have my husband's money and no one bothering me. Right. I like being married. Just to be (laughs) We're both both heavily married. I just don't think I would like being married in the 1700s. But we're married by choice. Yeah. I I picked the guy. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So, yeah, happiness, Republican motherhood, marriage, all of that was different at this time. Yeah. And I definitely agree. Eliza's doing what you said. She's asking them for advice, (laughs) and they're giving it to her, and she's like, no. (laughs) They're taking completely different worldviews. Yeah. Which I think the more you dig into the historical context of the novel, the more that becomes evident. Like, oh, you're seeing two separate ways of thinking portrayed here. Yeah. Which I can't imagine was not intentional. On the author's No, part. it seems really obvious now, and I was being annoyed with Eliza as I read it. Right. But when you explained what it was, I was like, okay, we're thinking the whole individual, the whole individual, right. and we're reading these letters back and forth between those two vo- those two voices and how they dissent. Right, and it's two, it's like two different languages. That yeah. I'm she's like, I want to do this, and they're like, no, you need to do this for the good of the whole. And she's like, but what about me <laughs> personally? <laughs> so I wrote a whole paper on this, like I said. But what's more interesting to me and to some critics is not the seduction plot, the marriage plot that you very well outlined for us, but the female plot, the like subplot between her and her friends. Okay. She has the quote that marriage is the tomb of friendship. Yes. Right. So that's kind of what I focused on that and voice for my paper um, and what I find interesting about this novel because she, when she finally succumbs to Sanford, like, that's not what leads her into depression. She's already depressed because both of these guys have seemingly abandoned her. But it's not just the guys. Mm-hmm. Her friends have also abandoned her. And not just because they have a different worldview than she does. One of them is married and has a child. One, one of them is married at the beginning of the book, has a child throughout. You only ever get one letter from her. Yeah. So you're not hearing from her a lot. When Lucy gets married, you hear from her a lot less. Yeah. And Julia is, of course, that's what she's seeking. She's not married by the end of it, but she is seeking that, too. And so it's just like one by one. You lose your friends to marriage. Right. Um, Ivy Schweitzer, she uh, has some really good work about this secondary female plot. She talks about how, like, you know, in friendship, you're looking for that second self, that mirror, the two souls in one body. And Eliza is just looking for that and looking for that. But she can't find it anywhere. Because they go find their soulmate in a man. Right, exactly. Um, And then Molly Ball, who wrote a chapter in a book that we can reference in the show notes, um, she talks about how Eliza's disinterest in in these men is not just because she doesn't like them and she's looking for another guy. She just doesn't want to be married. Yeah. Like, period. But there's no place for that. She's attracted to Sanford. She likes him. Mm -hmm. And that... Molly Ball speculates she's trying to prolong this freedom of this liminal space between, like, girlhood and marriage. Like, she just wants, and she tries to elongate that time by connecting with her friends, but they don't reciprocate. Mm-hmm. And it's really sad. Yeah. Um, Schweitzer, I'll, a quote from her that 
struck me is the homosocial plot offers Eliza another choice altogether, which her women friends cannot perceive and perversely conspire to prevent her from making. That is to reject the terms of federalist marriage or extramarital passion and choose friendship, a historically rooted social alternative and the contemporary political equivalent of independence. Which mm. I love, like, oh, to be friends is to be independent. Yeah. But she can't find one. Oh. And that just makes me sad for her. And Ball, she she says that Lucy reads Eliza's hesitation about Boyer as a desire to maintain the possibility of choice rather than the freedom from choosing. Yeah. She's like, it's not just because of him and I want a better guy. And I think that I think that has to be intentional because she doesn't succumb to Sanford and then get depressed because things aren't going her way. Like, it's only when she feels abandoned by both guys and all of her friends that she then is like, okay, I guess I'll sleep with you. <laughs> yeah. She writes to Mrs. Richmond about Lucy's upcoming marriage mm-hmm. in the novel. Uh, these are This is Eliza's letter. The idea of separation of an alienation of affection by means of her entire devotion to another cast an involuntary gloom over my mind. Yeah, I remember that line. So I just, I feel for her, like, she just feels like, you know, in, in today's world, I'm sure people can still relate to that. Like, Yeah. I'm sure you get to a certain students. point and all of your friends have gotten married and are talking about babies, and if you're yeah. the one who's not doing that, I, I'm sure you do. But at least now, like, okay, you got... Some options. Yeah. She didn't have... At least you have Tinder. Any options. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, I like looking at that subplot of the book. And then the issue of voice, too, since it is all letters. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about how moralistic the ending sounds. I think there's a reason for that. Because by that point, you're hearing from Eliza less. You don't, you know, her voice becomes fragmented. When she, she's been searching and searching for this friendship the second self and when she doesn't find it she just stays silent yeah and her silencing at the end it, it's so tragic because she she does it like i think on purpose she stops writing to her friends she runs away but when she does that that means that they get to take over her narrative just mm. like the whole country took over elizabeth wharton's narrative in her absence like oh well she's a cautionary tale like yeah can't be like her so like i get that you're like i'm out Eliza, I don't want to deal with this anymore. But then your silence lets other people spin your story. Yeah. And that's what happens to her literally on her tombstone. Her friends are what write her tomb. They're who write her tombstone. Yeah. I like that, like, look at it Mm -hmm. is that they took over her narrative. I didn't think of it that way, but you're right that when she gets really depressed, people are writing letters about how she's so depressed. Yes. She's not writing her own letters because... And they even say, like, she's too depressed to write, which is something she used to really love doing. Mm -hmm. And now she doesn't even want to do it. We can't. We're trying to convince her to write because it might be fun and she might, you know, brighten up a little bit, but she won't do it. Mm -mm. And, yeah, I didn't realize that it was her friends taking over her own narrative. Yes. I like that. And they just, and they can't ever come to an agreement. And what's sad, too, is, like, they both have good points. Yeah. Eliza and her friends, but they just can't bridge that gap. Um, Eliza writes to Lucy... It is an ill-natured and misjudging world, and I am not obliged to sacrifice my friends to its opinions. Like, you know, <laughs> you go, girl. And then Lucy later writes to Eliza in another letter, slight not the opinions of the world. We are dependent beings. No female can be indifferent to reputation. Yeah. Like, she's like, yeah, but you can't just say forget it all. Like, this is reality. And I'm like, oh, they're both kind of right. And yeah. this is so sad. <laughs> It seems like they're looking for the compromise that doesn't exist of that time. Right. You can either do marriage or you can do whoring. <laughs> like, That's it. That's all you got. And Eliza's like, can't there be a middle ground where I just, you know, have conversations with this guy who I think is charming and fun? Nope. And no. Also, absolutely. he's not a nice guy. Like, no, a nicer really. One. He's a complete... <laughs> I read from his letter. He yeah, is he's a awful. real troll. I do not care for him. So, yeah, I... I mean, yeah, on the surface, the seduction plot is definitely there. But to me, the more interesting one is the plot about friendship and how and I didn't friendship pick can up survive. on that. It's not it's not the main plot. Yeah. But I like you pointing it out to me. Yeah, the I'll leave with so the very first letter of the book that Eliza writes, she writes, I wish for no other connection than that of friendship. Aww. And then the last page of the book on her tombstone that her friends wrote and, and paid for. She lived an example of calm resignation and sustained the last painful scene far from every friend. 
Oh no! I know. Like, oh man, you've made this book so much sadder. <laughs> it's like the real tragedy is not that she had this baby out of wedlock and and the death and all that. I mean, yeah, death is sad. Also, that's sad, but but that she she didn't have any friends and that's yeah. all she wanted. I didn't pick up on the friend plot, and, and I could. I mean, this could be a reductive reading of it, but that's just the angle I. No, I love that. I, like, so. I love that. What I thought was cool about this book, too, is I was thinking of ways it could potentially, even though it's super old, relate to students and to people today because we are always constructing our own narratives on social media. Mm -hmm. And then, like, you are present on social media. I am notoriously silent on social media. (laughs) But, like, what does that mean? Then who's constructing your narrative? So if you want to indulge me, I'll just read you the last paragraph of my paper about this Yes. This idea of whether or not one can be in charge of her own narrative and the dangers of being misread when one does does attempt control is one that I believe will resonate with the digital natives that sit in my classrooms. How much of that interpretive domain one wants to leave in the hands of her friends is a risky decision, especially in today's overabundance of platforms in which to engage in self-expression and seek that mirror of a second self. It is my hope that high school students could take from a reading of The Coquette not a moralistic picture of heroes and villains, but a complicated issue of how friendship and happiness are shaped by the self that we choose to reveal or not reveal to our society. I love that. So that's that's where I'm going to end there. It's not a book anybody's going to go out and read after this. I know I that. don't know. You might have convinced someone <laughs> to at least try it. But um, I think it's a fun one to teach. And so yeah. I just thank you for being my first student. Yes, I think <laughs> that with your students, the idea of approaching it as who... Who tells your story? Right. Another who Hamilton lives, who, lives, who, who dies. dies, who tells your story. Yeah. I think that will speak to them a whole lot more than the morality of walking in gardens with boys. Right, sure. Although yeah. Bridgerton's big now, so yeah. maybe they'll... Uh, Bridgerton's I'd, racier than you. <laughs> well, yeah. I'd love to have them like do a project where they rewrite some of these letters as like tweets, maybe. Ooh. I know they don't tweet anymore. They do other things. But at least gives you like a yeah. limited amount of characters, you know. That's fun. Yeah. I like that. Just come be in my class. You're going to be a great teacher for this book. <laughs> Thanks. I Who knows when or if I'll ever teach it. I think you should also read one-star reviews to yes. your students. I'm actually, sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this. But I'm excited for this one. Yeah. I really, first of all, not a whole lot of people have read this book. I'll say that. I, I wondered, <laughs> like, I was going to ask you, how many reviews are there on Goodreads? Not a lot. There were not a lot of reviews to pick from. <laughs> and there were... Not that many ratings, but even fewer people who actually took the time to review it. And then of those one-star reviews that I had to pick from, some were just like, I didn't like the language. I was like, well, that's a dumb review. Don't read a book from 1700s if you don't like the language. I don't know what you were expecting. Yeah. So I only have a few, and they're very short. That's cool. But here we are down here. Okay, Melissa. Okay, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but I really disliked this book. That's that's nice. (laughs) Maybe one star is a bit harsh, but when I read the ending, I was like... What? Lame. It was just so melodramatic, and the moral of the story really rubbed me the wrong way. I actually might recommend it just because it lends itself to an interesting discussion. Anyhow, not my fave. I mean, okay, yeah. Yeah, she's right. Not a scathing one-star review. How do you say this person's name? Zandanavian? I think it's a play on Scandinavian, but it's like, Ah, probably his name is like Xander or something. Cool. He wrote, very loquacious fellow. Worst thing I ever read, period. <laughs> oh, okay. Jasper. <laughs> okay. Jasper. I, too, am young, gay, and volatile. <laughs> and I want that on a shirt. Is that a quote from the book? Yes. I know. Okay. I wonder if he's using gay in the way we now use it. I think he is. <laughs> I think he is. I, too, am young, gay, and volatile. I've been accused of all those things. <laughs> so That's great. I really enjoyed that from Jasper. We're Jasper, gonna, thank you for giving me that. I We're going to add that to, like, the Raspberry Jam. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And the mystery with breaks for porn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to do it again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was talking to my friend from Canada. <laughs> yeah, your friend from... Do you want to say his name? Like, his name's a real person. His name's Brian. Okay. Um, you sure? Yeah. Is he in the room now? <laughs> um, so he was saying that he listened to our episode 
mystery with breaks for porn. Is was that erotic uh, stories? Erotic for stories. So it was the la- it was the episode that came out <clears throat> yesterday. And he goes, you said something that I thought was really funny. And one of you said it should go on a T-shirt. What was it? And I'm sitting there at work, surrounded by my coworkers. And I said, um, mystery with breaks for porn. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, mm, could have typed that, probably. <laughs> Did anybody look at you? I don't. They probably had their headphones in, but I was just like, I probably should put that in the chat. And not <laughs> said it out loud. So. That's great. Yeah, we need to just start making a list of all these. Yeah. Hey, if you want to rate, review, and subscribe. Yeah, and support us on Patreon, we can get money to start making shirts that say yeah, things like mystery with breaks for porn. I and too am young, <laughs> gay, and volatile. volatile. You can have a shirt that says that if you support <laughs> us on Patreon. So really, it's on you now yeah. if you don't do that. Well, before we go, I do want to end with, well, one, today is a big day. It's my oldest son's birthday. <gasps> it is! I have been a mother now for four years. Wow. I eschewed the coquette life of... <laughs> You were so on the verge of it. <laughs> no, yeah. I, was, I was not. Before you got married, we were all talking to you oh, about being a coquette. My, my life plan was to be a cat lady. Yeah, I went to the bakery today to order his cake. And, oh, my kids. He wanted a picture of himself on his cake. Like, not just his head, his whole self. Because he has already told certain people in the family what piece of his body they get to eat. Yeah, that's a very four-year-old. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I went in there today. And I picked up some things for us. Surprise. Because I know it, like, says it's our ninth episode, but with the bonus episode, it's technically the tenth episode. So yeah. we're going to celebrate. So I have little um, petty fours and macarons. Yes. They're my favorite. Uh, we don't have to eat them on air. Nobody wants to listen to that. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get really close to the microphone and chew. <laughs> the office ladies do this. Angela and um, Jenna. Jenna. Thank you. Oh, I'm tired. Well, now I really appreciate that podcast because it had it gave yeah. you the idea to bring me cookies. Angela's <laughs> always bringing little things. So I was like, oh, and I was in that bakery today. I'm like, I'm going to do this. So happy 10th episode. Happy 10th episode. Yeah. So we can eat those after the after we turn the recording device <laughs> off. <laughs> well, first I have to tell you what you're reading next week. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm, yes, go ahead. Okay. So next week's book is They Never Learn by Lane Fargo. I love this book, and I think Hannah might hate it. I am already halfway into it. Okay. Tell me nothing. Nope, I won't till next week. Thank you for listening to You Might Hate This Book. Join us again next week for more discussion of the books we love and the books we hate. You can help others find this podcast by leaving us a review and five-star rating. And don't forget to hit subscribe. You can offer additional support and earn cool perks by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash hatethisbookpod. Special thanks to Montague Workshop. See you next week. (laughs) Brian, why don't you tell us what you said? Oh my gosh.